You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hey friends, this is Travis Snow, and it's great to be here with you today on the podcast. Today I wanted to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the biblical feasts and the return of Jesus. And we'll kind of cover an overview outline today that I think is important to establish in order for us to approach this topic in the right way. But I also want to say here on the front end, for those who want to go a lot deeper, uh, my ministry just published a book on this. It's called The Biblical Feast and the Return of Jesus, and it's available on Amazon. You can also always get more information on my website, shilohmedia.org. And uh, even if you've been studying this topic for a long time, I can promise you we're going to cover some new ground here today, and in my books and future teachings, uh, we'll be unpacking all of this uh related to the biblical feasts and eschatology a lot more. But I thought on the front end, I would frame our, our time together with something that Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. And this really gets at the heart of why I think this is such an important topic. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put simply, Peter is saying that as believers, our hope is supposed to be fixed on the second coming. That's what he's calling the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says at that time, there's actually a grace that's going to be brought to us. So of course, we know when Jesus comes back, things are only going to get better for us and there are much better things to come. And Peter is saying, I want your hope to be fixed there. That doesn't mean we don't have to go to work and pay the bills and do all the everyday things of life, but there's a sense in which biblical discipleship is supposed to be driven by the hope of the kingdom, the hope of the return of Christ, and that that is supposed to be the anchor for our souls that kind of holds us steady in the midst of life's storms. And Hebrews 12 verse 2 says something very similar about Jesus. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus was able to endure the challenges of life and even the the difficulties and the torture of the cross itself because of the joy that was set before him. He was thinking about the age of resurrection, not only his resurrection, but the future age of resurrection and the future age of bliss and paradise in the messianic kingdom. So it's not that I'm one who wants to always get into the sensational debates and sensational predictions that are often tied to end times prophecy, although I definitely understand there's a time and a place to talk about the rapture and the antichrist and politics and all of that. But more fundamentally, one of the things I am trying to do in my ministry is I'm trying to restore the biblical hope in the kingdom of God as a central uh, component of the daily life of the average believer. And in my experience and in my studies, one of the best things I have found to emphasize 
is the biblical feast. If we want to help people to do what Peter is saying there, if we want to help people to set their hope on the grace that's coming to us when Jesus returns, understanding and studying and as God leads us, even celebrating the biblical feast is one of the best things that I know to focus on. Because what we'll see today is the biblical feast, they really give us this beautiful picture, this beautiful kind of mosaic picture and this multifaceted revelation of events that are going to unfold when Jesus returns. And that's why I like the biblical feast, because it can really help us flesh uh, things out in terms of eschatology, in terms of the future, really in terms of what's waiting for us on the other side of the return of Jesus and the resurrection. Really, where is God taking us? What is the world he's taking us into going to be like the age of the millennium and all of that? And I've always found the biblical feast to be such a an important set of biblical institutions that can help us zero in on some of this stuff. So as we're looking at the biblical feast, just for review, I know a lot of people will already know this, but some may not, and it's always good to review. We, we understand that there are spring feasts and fall feasts. So in the spring, usually around the time of March and April, you have Passover. Everybody knows Passover. That is also connected to the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, and you have the day of first fruits in there as well. And then 49 days later, you have the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost or Shavuot. And then in the fall, in the seventh month, which is usually around uh, September, October on our modern calendars, you have the three fall feasts, which are the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles. So historically, especially since the 1900s and really like the 1970s, historically as Christians and Messianic Jews have talked about the biblical feasts and how they relate to the return of Jesus, they've typically argued in favor of the idea that Jesus already fulfilled the spring feast. So if you're thinking in your mind and you make two columns and you have the spring feasts on the left, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, we know Jesus was crucified as the Lamb of God on Passover. We know he was raised from the dead on the day of first fruits, uh, you know, roughly like two days later. And of course, he is the unleavened bread. You know, he's sinless, and there's a lot of connection between him calling himself the bread from heaven, and it's connected to sinlessness. And the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was poured out on the day of Pentecost, which was the Feast of Weeks, which was a big harvest festival. So a lot of people, I would say like 99% of the teaching you're going to hear on the biblical feast is going to be built on the idea that these spring feasts have already been fully fulfilled and kind of reached their prophetic endpoint through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, this in turn has also led to the idea that Jesus will therefore only fulfill the fall feast when he comes back. And so this has led to all kinds of different views, people saying that Jesus is going to come back on the Feast of Trumpets in the seventh month, which is also Rosh Hashanah, or some people will say he's going to come back on the Day of Atonement. But generally speaking, when you hear most people teaching on the feast, they're going to put the feast into this kind of dichotomy. They're going to say spring feast, first coming, fall feast, second coming, all right? And that's, that's been the consensus view. 
And I only know of actually a couple other uh, teachers, Christian and Messianic teachers, who argue otherwise. So what I want to do is I want to look at that view and I want to explain why it's so problematic. This is what I call the consensus view. I want to look at why it's so problematic and why understanding how all of the feasts, both the spring and fall feast, relate to the return of Jesus and to his second coming actually reveals a lot more depth in terms of his second coming and what's going to happen and why we really need to build our eschatology and our view of the second coming around all of the feasts, spring and fall, rather than just the fall feast. And this is something I've really been wrestling through for a number of years. And as I was thinking about how most people teach on the feast, I kept seeing these different verses in scripture that kind of went against the mainstream view. And so everybody was saying the only the fall feast are tied to the second coming, but I would come across, for example, a passage in uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 15 to 16, and this is what Jesus said. So just listen to this verse and tell me if you think Passover's already been fulfilled through the crucifixion. Jesus says on the night before he's crucified to his disciples, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says there that he will not eat the Passover again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And of course, fulfillment, that Greek word, it just means filled up with its deepest level of messianic and eschatological meaning. So what's interesting there is Jesus doesn't say Passover will be fulfilled completely tomorrow when I'm crucified as the Lamb of God. And I'm not minimizing the amazing and beautiful connection between Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm just saying right there in Luke 22, Jesus says Passover has a future fulfillment in the kingdom. So he connects Passover to the kingdom. And as we'll see, he connects Passover to events that will take place in the kingdom and when he returns. So I would read that verse over the years and I'd hear all these people saying, Jesus already fulfilled Passover and it's only the fall feast that will be fulfilled when he returns. And I would think, actually, Jesus says the exact opposite. He implies that Passover and the spring feast have a future fulfillment. Also, here's Paul in second, um, I'm sorry, not second Corinthians. Here's Paul in Colossians uh, chapter two, verses 16 to 17. Paul says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So that's one reason why I'm not going to get into the whole debate over the law of Moses and should Christians be doing all this stuff. That's a totally separate discussion for another day. But my approach is just to not be judgmental, but to kind of leave people to uh, follow their own leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to judge others in respect to these things. But look what Paul also says, because these things are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ or to the Messiah. So he says, don't be judgmental about the feast. Don't be judgmental about diet, the festivals, uh, a Sabbath day, the new moon, all that, because they're a shadow of what is to come and the substance is in the Messiah. So what is Paul saying there? Well, if you look at that phrase, what is to come, that Paul is using, 
This is a phrase that is used over and over again in the New Testament when the apostles are talking about the future events of the kingdom and the return of Jesus. What is to come? So he says the festivals, that would be the biblical feast of Leviticus 23. The festivals are a shadow of what is coming. He doesn't say these festivals relate only to the past and they've already been fulfilled and some are about the past and only these are about the future. No, he groups them all together and he says they are all a shadow of what is to come. So the biblical feast as a complete package reveal what is to come. They reveal the hope of God's kingdom. And this goes back to what Peter says, what we started this discussion with, why it's so important to understand the future prophetic layers of the biblical feast. Because they're a shadow of what is to come, that means understanding the feast can help us set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's really what the feasts are there for. Yes, they have a historical meaning. That's kind of like layer one. I cover all this in my book, by the way. That's like layer one. What did the feast mean historically to the ancient Israelites? Then they have a messianic layer that's already kind of come to pass through Christ and that is sort of coming to pass spiritually for us. So definitely, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's Passover. The Holy Spirit's poured out. We receive the Spirit. So they definitely have this messianic layer. But also, all of the feasts have this eschatological layer. They're showing us what is to come so that we can set our hope fully on the glories and the grace of God's future kingdom. And that's what Paul is saying here. And so I say to people all the time, if you want to know what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and I'm not just talking about like the general vague picture. You know, you get a lot of generality sometimes. You, I read a lot of eschatology books and everything is so generalized. It's like Jesus comes back and God wins in the end and he's going to set up his kingdom and Jesus comes on the white horse and he's going to defeat evil. And it's also generalized. But people are not really getting into the substance and into the detail. There's so much detail that's given in scripture. It's not just generalities. And the reason that detail is given to us is so we can set our hope there so that we, like Jesus, can understand the joy that is set before us. You have to know the joy that is set before you to endure the trials and tribulations of life and to make it through many of the difficult circumstances that God will call us to endure. You have to know the joy. And so I'm really interested in understanding what Paul is saying there about how these things are a shadow of what is to come because I want to be able to fix my hope on the right thing. I want to be able to set, you know, understand the joy that's set before me. So that's why I've always been so, so into the biblical feast. It's been like a 20-year journey for me. I, I lived in Israel for a year and I started studying the feast uh, very deeply in my 20s and I came back to the States and I did a bachelor's degree in Jewish studies, kind of understanding all this stuff. And then I went to seminary and studied more prophecy through those years as well. And then after graduating seminary, and again, I've not found anything that explains the glory of the second coming better than the, than the feast. However, in order to get to this point, we have to overcome this consensus view. That's why I'm just kind of laying the groundwork here or the popular view since the 1970s when people are saying, oh, you know, the, Jesus already fulfilled those feasts and the spring feast, so now it's, it's only the fall feast. No, that's wrong. They're all about the future. And we need to understand how all the feasts are about the future. This has so much practical significance for us. 
So in the rest of our time here on this podcast, I want to just go through the major feasts and how they point forward to what Jesus will do when he returns. And one of the main things I I argue in my newest book is how to get this uh, doctrine right, we really have to understand what the feast meant historically. So I kind of operate off the premise that you first have to understand the historical meaning of the feast, and then you can kind of bridge from there into the messianic and prophetic layers. So let's start with Passover. What is Jesus saying, going back to Luke 22? What is Jesus saying when he says Passover will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God? What is Jesus saying when he says Passover is related to his second coming? Because there's hardly anybody who talks about this. Here's what I think we need to understand. When you really look at the Passover story, what is the major theme of the Passover story? The major theme of the Passover story, a lot of people would say redemption. It's about redemption. God redeemed Israel. That's actually only partially true. When you really start unpacking it, the major theme of the Passover story is actually warfare. It's warfare. The Passover story in Exodus, it is a warfare text. It is a text that outlines the military exploits of Israel's God. Basically, in Exodus, God goes to war against the Pharaoh and against the powers of darkness, and against all the gods of Egypt. There is a military battle taking place, and in Exodus, God is vanquishing his enemies on the battlefield. That's how somebody living in the ancient Near East would have read that story. That's how they would have understood these plagues. And one of the reasons God used the plagues in Exodus is because there were many other stories in circulation in the ancient Near East where it would show a military warrior or a divine warrior or the god of a people using the forces of nature as a weapon on the battlefield or a weapon of war. And I'm not saying all of these uh, other texts are necessarily true. A lot of them are mythological, whereas we know Exodus is historically true. But I'm trying to show you how Exodus fits into a historical context. And the reason God used those plagues in Exodus is because people from other cultures, they would have understood, including the Israelites and the Egyptians, they would have understood these plagues through a warfare lens because there are other stories about different gods and goddesses using these type of nature weapons, some scholars call them, on the battlefield. So everything in Exodus is giving us this picture of of the Lord, of Israel's God, as a warrior, as a divine warrior. And this is why, for example, after Israel crosses the Red Sea, they say the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And literally the Hebrew says the Lord is a man of war. So there's this, there's this warfare theme that's coming up over and over in Exodus. And so you start thinking about that and you say, okay, the major theme of the Exodus story and the Passover story is actually warfare. So what could it mean that Passover, like Jesus is saying in Luke 22, what could it mean that Passover has a future fulfillment when Jesus returns? Well, I'm sure a lot of us have heard before that when Jesus returns, he's coming back as this great and mighty warrior. What is Jesus going to do when he comes back? He's going to go to war on behalf of his people against the forces of darkness. 
And he's also going to rescue Israel. There are many texts that refer to this great second exodus that Jesus will lead when he returns. I talk about this in my book, The Biblical Feast, The Return of Jesus. I also talk about this in uh, my first book, The Passover King. And there's a great book by Joel Richardson called Sinai to Zion. So there's this theme in the prophets that when Jesus comes back, He's going to war, and he's leading a second exodus. And we don't have time in this podcast to go through a lot of these texts. You can find them in Isaiah. You can find them in Ezekiel. You can find them in Habakkuk. You can find them in the Minor Prophets. But I'm just trying to point out how when we think about Passover and really what Passover reveals about the future, Passover is just as much tied to how Jesus will come back as this great divine warrior. He will come back as this new Moses figure, as this divine warrior going to battle against the forces of darkness. And that's really what the Passover story is about. The Passover story, if you read it, it's actually a prophetic prototype. It's a prophetic shadow of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and defeats his enemies on the battlefield, just like Moses did, just like the Lord did in the book of Exodus. So, in order to kind of understand, okay, when we're talking about Passover and how it relates to not just Jesus's work as the Lamb of God, but the future, we have to understand it through the lens of warfare. And that is the grace that will be brought to us. And so maybe when we're talking about the Passover story and how it has practical application, as much as I want to look to Jesus as the Lamb of God to protect me from God's wrath— I think the Passover story is supposed to function also in a way that inspires hope in the time when Jesus will completely destroy the powers of evil, completely destroy the political powers of darkness, and just all the nonsense uh, that we see in the political sphere. And Passover is really about the time when he's going to come back and set everything right. That's what the Passover story is pointing forward to. Next, we come to after Passover— 49 days later, we come to the Feast of Weeks. And as I mentioned, a lot of people, they associate the Feast of Weeks only with the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost in the first century in the time of the apostles. But really what the Feast of Weeks was, the Feast of Weeks was Israel's major wheat harvest festival in the spring. So the wheat was harvested uh, right after the barley, which was harvested a little bit early. So the barley was harvested, uh, first fruits was right around Passover, and then 49 days later was when the wheat harvest was basically concluding. So it's this great harvest festival, and that's why in the first century all these people were harvested and came into the kingdom on the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Weeks definitely has that prophetic layer. But what if, as Paul is saying in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, what if the Feast of Weeks is also a shadow of other things to come? What if the Feast of Weeks is also pointing us to the future and describing events that will take place in the kingdom? Well, not coincidentally, there are a number of texts in the prophets where the gathering of the nations to Jerusalem after the second coming is described using the language that we also find in the passages in Leviticus that talk about the Feast of Weeks. So the prophets really describe the nations coming into the kingdom. They describe it as a fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. I'm going to give you a couple examples. In Isaiah 66, 18 through 20, we read this. 
He says, The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. So when Jesus comes back, it's important to understand not everyone who's a non-believer is necessarily going to be killed and destroyed. There is going to be a remnant of what Isaiah calls survivors. So some people will survive the judgments of the end times and come into the the kingdom as basically non-believers. So Isaiah says, there will be survivors that will go to the distant nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory to the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So these people who are harvested from the nations are called a grain offering. And this is taking place in the kingdom after Jesus comes back. And that word, grain offering, is the same word that's used in Leviticus for the Feast of Weeks offering. There was a major Feast of Weeks wheat offering that was made in the temple. And that's the same word that Isaiah uses there. So he's using Feast of Weeks language to describe the gathering of the nations. So you can already see how the, how the biblical feasts, starting with the spring feasts, really give us this amazing roadmap of what happens when Jesus comes back. He comes back as the new Moses, as a divine warrior. He defeats the powers of darkness and goes to war against the enemies of Israel and the, the forces of the Antichrist. And then after that, things kind of settle down, and there's this great gathering of the nations that basically represents the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. And then Joel says this in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. He says, it will come about after this. And Joel's talking about the kingdom being established. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. And your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So Joel is actually saying that the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit ever witnessed in the history of mankind will take place after Jesus comes back. So the the messianic age, it is the age of the spirit. So all these people who have been gathered from the nations, they're going to experience a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in the messianic age, the spirit is going to function with gifts of prophecy and dreams and visions and gifts of healing and gifts of prophetic utterance and preaching like never before. And Paul actually says in Romans 8 as well that right now we only have the first fruits of the Spirit. So when Jesus comes back, even those of us who are saved now, we will get the Holy Spirit in greater measure. And we will have deeper experiences with the Holy Spirit of God than we have right now, really, than we can ever imagine. And so what happened on Pentecost in the book of Acts, on the Feast of Weeks, that wasn't the final fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. That was actually the precursor to what will take place in the kingdom. And that's why in Acts 2, they quoted from Joel chapter 2. And they're saying, yeah, this is what Joel predicted. But they weren't saying that's like 
the end of the prophecy, because if you go and read Joel 2, he's talking about the kingdom. So we know this is about something that's happening in the future. So when I'm thinking about the biblical feast and I'm thinking about the hope of the second coming, there's something in, in this idea of the Spirit being poured out, and we are supposed to be the people of the Spirit now who are anticipating the great outpouring of the Spirit, not only to come in history or in end times revival, but we are supposed to be the people of the Spirit who are anticipating the great outpouring of the Spirit that we will experience in the Messianic age. So after Feast of Weeks, there's a little bit of a lull in the biblical calendar, and we come to the Feast of Trumpets which in Leviticus 23 is actually called a reminder by blowing or blasting trumpets. But the word trumpets isn't actually there. The Hebrew phrase is actually a zichron teruah. So a zichron is a memorial or remembrance. And a teruah is just basically a really loud sound. So it could be human shouting could be a teruah, but also the blast of a trumpet could be a teruah. So God tells Israel in the seventh month, to have a memorial by basically teruah, loud shouting, loud sounds. And unfortunately, a lot of people have connected the Feast of Trumpets to the rapture because, of course, we know that when Jesus comes back and the rapture takes place, there's going to be all these trumpets sounding. But I, I cover this in my book, and I will hopefully do a video on this on the future there's not actually a lot of biblical evidence that the rapture trumpet is tied to the Feast of Trumpets because trumpets were used throughout the year. So you can't exactly say like every trumpet I see in scripture will necessarily correlates to the seventh month or to the Feast of Trumpets. So there's really a, a hermeneutical exegetical error there, an error of association that's being committed in my view when people tie the rapture trumpet to the Feast of Trumpets. There's no real biblical evidence that the rapture is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. So if you're thinking about, okay, well, then what is the Feast of Trumpets really about? What is it really pointing forward to? Again, first of all, we have to go back to historical context. When God told Israel to have a reminder by blowing trumpets and shouting extravagantly, Teruah, Remember, that's that word teruah in the seventh month. Really what he was telling them to do was to remember their encounter with him at Mount Sinai. Because if you read Exodus 19, the first time Israel ever heard the trumpet blast in the Bible, ever, the first time they ever heard the shofar blast was at Mount Sinai. And God called them to the mountain and they saw his glory come down in this fiery blazing lightning storm. And then they heard the sound of the trumpet and everybody was freaking out. So the Sinai encounter was initiated with the trumpet blast. And then Israel, when they, when they heard the words of God, they responded to him with their own teruah, you could say, their own response. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the Feast of Trumpets in the seventh month, this memorial of teruah, memorial of trumpet blast, it's really a memorial of the Sinai encounter. God is basically saying to Israel in uh, Leviticus 23, when he talks about the Feast of Trumpets, he's saying, remember the Sinai covenant. Remember your encounter and future generations must remember the encounter at Mount Sinai and they must recommit to walking with me in covenant fidelity. So that's what's happening there. There's this kind of interplay where on the Feast of Trumpets, 
Israel is supposed to sound the trumpet, which reminds them of Sinai. And then they're also supposed to respond and give their own teruah, their own shout of praise, uh, recommitting to their walk with the Lord. And when you look at Mount Sinai, there's also a close connection with these events to the idea that God was enthroned as Israel's king at this time. Because in the ancient world, it was the king of a nation who gave them the law. So at Mount Sinai, God is becoming the king of Israel. That's the idea. And even in modern Judaism, there's this very close correlation to the kingship of God and the Feast of Trumpets. So it's not just that God is saying, remember Mount Sinai. God is saying in the seventh month, make sure you re-enthrone me as your king. Make sure you recommit to walking with me as your king. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is really about. It's about the kingship of God. It's about the kingship of the Lord and his reign. So then we go from the historical into the prophetic and we say, well, how does that relate to what Jesus will do when he returns? How does the Feast of Trumpets tie into what Jesus will do when he returns? Well, it's very simple. After Jesus comes back, defeats the powers of darkness, is victorious on the battlefield, fulfills Passover, the nations are gathered like the wheat harvest, the Holy Spirit is poured out. There are many, many passages in scripture that say, we're not going to gather at Mount Sinai, we're going to gather at Mount Zion. And at Mount Zion, we are going to attend the coronation and enthronement ceremony, the formal coronation and enthronement ceremony for Jesus. And the the illustration I give in my book, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings, if you remember at the end of the final uh, installment in the trilogy, which is called The Return of the King and the Lord of the Rings where the king is is formally enthroned and they place the crown on his head after all these battles have been won and everybody has been gathered to the mountain. That's exactly what you see in scripture. So the Feast of Trumpets is preparing us for the day when Jesus is formally enthroned as king and the crown is placed on his head and we are going to attend his coronation ceremony and his government is going to be established and his throne is going to be established on Mount Zion. And then it says in Isaiah 2, the law is going to go forth just like in the days of Sinai, although, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to be the Messianic age, but it's going to be this repeat, this recapitulation of what happened at Mount Sinai, this glorious encounter that Israel had with their king. We're going to have this glorious encounter with Jesus on Mount Sinai, and that's what the Feast of Trumpets is pointing to and preparing us for. So here's uh, Psalm 47. And Psalm 47 is very important because it uses the language of the Sinai narrative and it uses the Teruah language from Leviticus 23 to speak about the Messiah's enthronement and coronation. And it says this in verses, uh, this is Psalm 47 verses five through nine. It says, God has ascended with a shout. And that word shout is Teruah. That's the word for the Feast of Trumpets. So remember, this isn't about the rapture. (laughs) The prophets aren't using the Teruah or the Feast of Trumpets language for the rapture. They're using it for the time when God ascends his holy mountain with a shout, with the Teruah. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet, and that word is the shofar. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is king over all the earth. And the way you could translate these Hebrew verbs, it's, it's future prophetic. You could even translate it as God will be king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. 
because God reigns over the nations and God sits on his holy throne. So when is that going to happen? When is God going to sit on his holy throne? That never happened in the past. That didn't happen in ancient Israel. This is talking about the Messiah, God in the flesh, sitting on his throne. It says at the end of the passage, the princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets is when the nations will shout and they'll proclaim Jesus as king and they'll hear this great shofar blast as we're all assembled there on Mount Zion before Jesus the king. That's what it's pointing forward to. And so every Feast of Trumpets, every seventh month until then, is meant to be a foretaste of the Messiah's enthronement on Mount Zion. And I wanted to read this from a, an Orthodox Hasidic rabbi who really captures the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets. And I, I like a lot of the Jewish sources because even though they don't get everything right, a lot of the Jewish rabbis, they their thinking is like unadulterated, I could say, from a lot of the Christian prophecy nonsense. So a lot of times they're better at getting to the heart of the feast than even Christian and Messianic teachers. But anyways, here's what this rabbi, Noson Garari, says. He says, in the prayers of the Feast of Trumpets, when we refer to God in terms of kingship and ruling, we are asking for an extension of the scope of his kingship until every created thing will understand that he created it. Thus, the ultimate expression of the theme of kingship on the Feast of Trumpets is our request that God's kingship will reach the ultimate revelation of the days of Mashiach, of Messiah. And he's saying very simply there that every Feast of Trumpets is a dress rehearsal for the Messianic age. Every Feast of Trumpets is anticipating when the Messiah will be crowned as king on Mount Zion and when his kingdom and government will be established overall. And that reminds us, no matter what the political situation is, no matter what's going on in the, the madhouse, chaotic world of politics, as Peter says, we can fix our hope on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can fix our hope on the day when Jesus will be king. And ultimately, really, we have nothing to worry about in life or in the reign of politics because we know Jesus will reign. Now, after the Feast of Trumpets comes the Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And just for the sake of time, I want to kind of put these together for us and kind of look at them as a unit because they really do go together. Now, if you talk to a lot of Christians, they will think about the Day of Atonement really in terms of being saved. And, you know, a lot of people have connected this to Israel being saved and redeemed in the future. But historically, the uh, Day of Atonement didn't really have anything to do with anyone being saved. Really what the Day of Atonement was about was purifying the sacred space so that God could continue to dwell in the tabernacle. And that's why if you read Leviticus, a lot of the ceremonies, almost all of the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, they're centered around the tabernacle because there's this idea that sin and human uncleanness 
brings contamination into the space where God lives. And because God is heavenly and he's holy and he's otherworldly, he can't mingle with human sin and uncleanness. So the Day of Atonement was really about cleansing the space, the sacred space, and also, yes, cleansing the people, but cleansing the people so that they could live in God's presence. Because remember, God was actually dwelling there in ancient Israel. His glory was there. So it was about the people could live in God's presence. They would be cleansed. Their sin would be taken away. And then also the space of God's house would basically be cleaned and purged on the Day of Atonement. So if you really look at what is the Day of Atonement pointing us forward to in terms of the return of Jesus, it's not so much pointing us forward to the initial salvation of Israel. It's actually pointing us forward to this process of purification that will take place. And so the people will be cleansed. Yes, absolutely. Israel will be cleansed. Ezekiel 36, he talks about this. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 25, he says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And there at Ezekiel, he's using the exact language from the Day of Atonement. And you can see there's a process that's happening because it's not like Jesus comes back and immediately the Day of Atonement is fulfilled. Ezekiel says he's going to have to take them from the nations, and that's going to require some time to unfold. So he's going to take the Jewish remnant, and not just the Jewish remnant, but all these people from the nations, and all peoples are going to be cleansed, and they're going to be saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And also, if you read in Ezekiel 39. We don't have time to go into this passage in depth here, but if you read in Ezekiel 39, it talks about how the land of Israel and the space for God's temple will be cleansed after the the battle of Armageddon, which is the battle of Gog and Magog. I know there's a lot of people who don't think the battle of Gog and Magog is the battle of Armageddon. I go into this in depth in my book, The Passover King. 100%, I can guarantee you, the battle of Gog and Magog is the battle of Armageddon. And if you look there in Ezekiel, he says that after this battle, the land is going to be cleansed. And why is the land being cleansed? The land is being cleansed so that the temple can be built, so that God can then dwell among us. So when we're thinking about the feast, really what the Day of Atonement is pointing forward to is the time when us as believers, and also Israel and the nations, all the people alive at the time when Jesus returns will be cleansed, and the land will be cleansed, and this process of purification is taking place so that the glory of God can come again and dwell among his people, which brings us finally to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is really like the ultimate culmination feast on the biblical calendar. It's the seventh feast that takes place in the seventh month for seven days. So there's this element of completion and perfection there. And really what the Feast of Tabernacles was, was the Feast of Tabernacles was the recognition that everything had been done. And prophetically, this is what it points forward to, that everything will be done and completed. The victory of Jesus will be completed. The spirit is poured out. Jesus is enthroned as king. The people and the land are cleansed, right? That brings us through all the, the earlier feasts, the spring and fall feasts. And then the Feast of Tabernacles points forward to this time when God's glory can dwell again on the earth. Revelation 21.3, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
And that's the word that's used for Feast of Tabernacles in the Hebrew Bible. The tabernacle of God is among men, will be among men, and he will dwell among us, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So it's pointing us to this time when not just Jesus, but actually the glory of God the Father, the vision that that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 of God's glory, the glory of the Father. He says, this is going to come back in the Messianic age and dwell among us, dwell in the Messianic temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. God is going to dwell once again in his sanctuary. And there's all these passages in the Hebrew Bible that talk about God himself coming again to dwell in the sanctuary. And that's really what the Feast of Tabernacles is pointing us to. And the Feast of Tabernacles is closely associated with joy and rejoicing because if God is among you, then you have to be joyful. And it's also connected to abundance. And there's this idea that the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to the abundance of the Garden of Eden being restored. Because if God is among us, we not only have joy, but we know he's going to provide for us. So that's what the Feast of Trumpets, um, I'm sorry, the Feast of Tabernacles is intending to inspire, is this hope and the time when we will experience full, complete fellowship with God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Son in the Messianic age when they will dwell among us completely. And so just from this overview here, you can see why Paul said in Colossians, these feasts are a shadow of what is to come. The feasts are highlighting for us this series and this sequence of events that will unfold. And another analogy I give is they're kind of like the wardrobe and the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, how the, if you're familiar with the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, it's like the wardrobe took the children into this mystical, mysterious land. And even though it's kind of a land of fantasy in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it kind of represents the kingdom in a lot of ways. And so that's really what the feasts are. They are this gateway for us to explore and to study the future events that will unfold when Jesus returns. And they are this gateway that can help us fix our hope completely on God's future kingdom that can steer us and guide us through the storms of life. Well, I know we covered a lot there today, but it's still just an outline. And again, I was hoping to kind of do everything in kind of a summary mode. And I know you often sacrifice some detail when you do that. I hope it was easy enough to follow. But again, if you want more information on this topic, the Biblical Feast and the Return of Jesus, you can always check out my book. You can check out my website, shilohmedia.org. And I'm hoping to unpack this more in future podcasts as well. I, sh- I should be doing about one podcast a month. So let us know what you think. Let us know what you're interested in. Let us know any questions or points of clarification that you have. And uh, we'll do our best to cover those things in the future. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. God bless, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode.